A number of years ago, a friend of mine gave me a shirt for my birthday with these words written on it, I haven't seen my best day yet. Now these words are loosely based on a wonderful Charles Spurgeon quote in which Spurgeon said this, he said, depend upon it, your dying hour will be the best hour you have ever known. Your last moment will be the richest moment, better than the day of your birth will be the day of your death. It shall be the beginning of heaven, the rising of a sun that shall go no more down forever. So, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then indeed your dying hour will be your best hour, because as Spurgeon reminds us it will be for you the beginning of heaven that will last forever. The sun will never set. How wonderful. Now, several weeks ago, we began a series on heaven, our future home. And my reason for doing this series is to help you to understand the truth about heaven because many Christians are just simply ignorant about their future home. Now, they know that having believed on Christ for salvation, that heaven is where they'll go when they die and they'll be with Jesus forever. But you know what? For many, that's, that's about it. They know very little else about heaven. And sometimes the information that they think they know about heaven is often very unbiblical and, quite frankly, very unappealing. So that they aren't particularly excited about going there. And so my purpose in preaching about heaven is really twofold. First of all, I want those of you who know Jesus to be excited about heaven. I want you to long for heaven. I want you to look forward to going to heaven. I want you, like the Old Testament heroes of faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, I want you to desire and seek for that heavenly country. I want you to feel like the Apostle Paul felt when he said, to die is gain. I want you to feel like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who upon his deathbed told his family, don't pray for my healing, don't hold me back from the glory. The glory being synonymous with heaven. My second purpose in doing the series on heaven is to ignite an evangelistic spark in all of us, to be excited about Jesus, to be excited about going to heaven, because if we're not excited about him and not excited about heaven, we're not really going to be too excited to tell others about Christ and how he's the only way to get to heaven. So that's my purpose for doing this series. So we began our study a few weeks ago by asking some key questions about heaven and then answering them from scripture with the first of these questions being this, the most basic of all questions, what is heaven? Now, the reason I started with this question is not only because it's the foundation, it is most basic, but also because some people think that heaven is merely a state of mind, a way of thinking, rather than an actual place with a real location. But according to the Bible, heaven is a real place. It's a place where God dwells, where angels dwell, and where all believers in Christ will eventually dwell, which means that heaven is a dwelling place with a definite location. It is not a state of mind. Jesus himself made this very clear in John chapter 14 verses 1 through 3. He made it clear to his disciples when in his final instructions to them before being arrested he told them about that upon returning to heaven he was returning to his father's house and that there would be a place for them in that 
house. And eventually he would come again and he'd take them there so that they would be with him. Where I am, he said, there you will be. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And I love his words when he said, if it were not so, I would have told you. So what is heaven? Well, it's definitely not a state of mind. It's a real place with an actual location where we will someday live. Now, the second question we asked last time, and we really spent the majority of our time addressing, was this. What will life be like in heaven? And what we discovered is that contrary to popular opinion, heaven isn't some boring, drab, dull place where all we're going to do is just sit around and pluck some strings on a harp. I mean, yuck. Who wants to do that? According to the Bible, heaven, which is presently somewhere above us. Why do I say that? Because that's what the word heaven means, both in the Hebrew and the Greek language. That which is above At the end of the millennial kingdom, that's Christ's thousand year reign on earth, at the end of that time, God is going to bring down heaven, it's going to come down to earth, and the place in the Bible that very clearly tells us this is Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. According to what we read here, God is going to completely transform the universe. And as we saw a few weeks ago, in Peter's second letter, he makes it very clear that he's going to do this by purging fire, fire, so that out of the purifying flames will emerge a new universe, a new heaven, and a new earth, completely righteous and untainted by sin. And at that time, heaven then is going to descend to earth with the capital city of heaven called the new Jerusalem coming down to permanently reside on our planet. And as the apostle John states in verse 2, in the new Jerusalem, which was the capital city, it will be an exquisite city, a city of great beauty. But beauty, not only outward, he compares it to a bride on her wedding day, but not only outward, though it will be exquisite in outward beauty, but primarily John is talking about the internal beauty of its character since all of its residents, all of them, will be saved, fully sanctified, sinless believers. What a day that will be. Now, folks, the fact that heaven comes to earth tells us a great deal about what our lives will be like in heaven because it reveals that heaven will be somewhat, note this, somewhat a continuation of what we once experienced on earth since it will be on earth. The primary difference being that there won't be any more sin to affect us and we ourselves will be sinless. That's very encouraging because being on earth Being on earth means that heaven will be, for us, it'll be like coming home. Because there will be a certain familiarity with heaven. Since it won't be otherworldly, it will be life on earth except without sin. And that makes all the difference. A few weeks ago, I read to you a quote from Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. And I quoted a lot from him because he's done so much research on this. He's thought of things that very few have thought of and delved into. But I quoted... 
uh, Randy Alcorn a few weeks ago about some of the similarities between our present lives and what we can expect our lives to be in glory because we will be living out eternity on our old stomping grounds, the earth. But today I want to give you another quote from this book because it reinforces how much heaven will feel like home. Randy Alcorn writes this, Home, as a term for heaven, isn't simply a metaphor. It describes an actual physical place, a place of fond familiarity and comfort and refuge. Scripture often speaks of banquets and feasts in heaven. We'll sit at tables with people we love and above all with Jesus we love. Revelation 21 and 22 tell us God will bring heaven down to this new earth by coming down to dwell there with his people. There will be natural wonders, a great river and the tree of life producing different fruit every month. He's getting that from Revelation 21 and 22. We should anticipate great sights and sounds and smells and tastes and delightful conversations. On that new world, his servants will serve him. And that means things to do, places to go, people to see. As resurrected people will live on the new earth, not a non-earthly angelic realm for disembodied spirits, will live in our resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth where the resurrected Jesus will rule on the throne of the new earth's capital city, a resurrected Jerusalem. And we will reign with him as righteous people ruling the earth to God's glory. That was exactly his design from the beginning. The Bible begins and ends with God and humanity in perfect fellowship on earth. Because we've already lived on earth, I think it will seem from the first that we're coming home. The new earth will strike us as familiar because it will be the old earth raised as our bodies will be our old bodies raised. The new earth will be the home we've always longed for. Listen, as I exhorted you a few weeks ago, so I exhort you again today, don't make the mistake of over-spiritualizing heaven so that you consider it totally unearthly and a bit eerie. Because if you do that, you're going to be denying the truth that God says that heaven will be a continuation of life on earth, except without sin. And therefore, the things that now make life so rich and pleasurable and enjoyable are those things that you will experience in heaven, but to a greater degree. Spending time with loved ones, with friends, having conversations with them, eating meals with them, playing games with them, traveling with them, participating in sports with them, enjoying culture, the arts, music with them. But while we'll enjoy these types of things to a greater degree than ever before, what will make heaven so immeasurably rich and enjoyable and pleasurable and better than anything we have ever experienced prior to that is that God will dwell with us in his fullness, meaning in his full glory, as we read in Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among us, and he'll dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Listen, as wonderful as it will be to continue enjoying in heaven many of the things that once made life here so pleasant and pleasurable. God's presence will be the most exciting and enjoyable and wonderful thing about heaven. 
And because God's full presence will be there for us to see, it means that unlike our present experience on earth, in the new earth, sin will no longer be present and therefore the effects, the consequences of sin will be gone as well. As John tells us in this verse, no more sorrow and no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain over losing a loved one or any other kind of pain. He says the first things, those things, they've passed away and they're never coming back. What a world we as believers have to look forward to, which is exactly why Spurgeon said that your dying hour will be the best hour you'll have ever known. But this is only true if you know Christ as your Savior. If you don't know Him, what I must tell you then is that your dying hour will be the worst hour you have ever known. If you don't know Christ, it will be the worst hour you've ever known because it will thrust you into an unending and unimaginable painful experience of endless judgment from God, His full wrath being poured out on you without any hope then of you ever being reconciled to God. So while you have opportunity, while there's hope, repent of your sin, turn to Christ. This life will soon be past. Turn to Christ before it's too late. When is it too late? When you die, it's too late. If you have opportunity now, trust Him. So, having asked these two questions, what is heaven and what will life be like in heaven, we now, as we continue our study this morning, I present to you a third question. What will we be doing in heaven? That's a helpful thing to know. What will we be doing in heaven? In spite of what many people think, heaven is not going to be an eternal holiday. It's not going to be that. It's not going to be an endless celestial retirement party. We're going to be very active in heaven. But before we see what we'll actually be doing in heaven, I want us to consider what we will not be doing in heaven. In a message given many years ago on the subject of heaven, John MacArthur spoke about some of the things that we do now, but we're never going to do them in heaven. He said this, he said, we will not sin, therefore we will never need to confess sin or struggle with it. We'll never need to apologize to anyone. We'll never experience guilt. We'll never need to write a letter to correct something we said or did. We'll not need to straighten out something that got confused because nothing will ever get confused. We'll never need to repair or replace anything because nothing will malfunction or wear out. That is an incredible comfort to me. I am not a handy guy, so I won't be calling upon anyone then for help. We'll never need to help anyone because no one will need help. We'll never have to battle Satan or the demons. We'll never have to deal with sinners. We'll never need to defend ourselves against attack because we'll never be attacked. We'll never be sad or lonely. We'll never be hurt emotionally or physically. We'll never need to be cured, counseled, or coddled. We'll never experience anything but absolute joy. We'll never grieve because we won't lose anyone or miss anyone. We won't need to be careful because we'll never make a mistake. We won't need to plan for emergencies or avoid danger because we won't encounter emergencies or danger. What a world we have to look forward to. Now, the fact that we won't be doing any of these negative activities or having any of these negative emotions makes heaven then very appealing. However, heaven won't be a place defined by the absence of negative things, but rather by the presence of positive activities. And according to scripture, 
The two very positive activities that we will be engaged in in glory will be worshiping Jesus and serving Jesus. So first, let's consider what it means that we'll be worshiping Jesus. As one goes through the book of Revelation, which often portrays life in heaven, yes, it speaks about life during the tribulation period, but often we're given glimpses of heaven. We see the reoccurring activity of humans and angels praising the Lord. For example, Revelation chapter 4, 10 and 11 say this, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Again, Revelation 5, 11 through 14, then I looked John said, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I'm not going to read it to you, but earlier I read Revelation chapter 7, which speaks of a multitude of people in glory who are worshiping the Lord. And listen, that's just a sampling. I could go on and on with a lot of passages like this from the book of Revelation telling us that in heaven there will be worship. But I think it's clear from what I've already read that worship and glory will be our priority. So let's think about what worship will be like in heaven because it is easy for us to have some misconceptions about worship. And if we don't dispel those misconceptions, then it could dampen your enthusiasm in looking forward to heaven. So let me dispel a few things. One misconception about worship that we do need to dispel is that unlike our worship today, which is often quite difficult because of so many distractions, worshiping God in heaven will be perfect without any distractions. So I don't know about you, but I find it very challenging to worship the Lord the way I want to worship the Lord. And that's because my sinful heart is so easily distracted that I have a hard time staying focused on him, so that when I'm praising God and expressing thanks to Him, the most ridiculous thoughts can pop into my mind. Obviously, that's true of you too. <laughs> now, one pastor I know said this about the difficulties, the challenges of worshiping the Lord now, but by contrast, how pure our worship will be in heaven. He said this What thrills me most about our heavenly praise is that it'll be perfect. Many times I want to praise God with all of my heart, but other thoughts crowd in and clutter my mind. Have you ever been praising God when some evil or trivial thought entered your mind or some nonsensical notion interrupted your praise? How discouraging to realize how earthbound we are. In heaven, our praise will always come out of pure hearts with pure motives and no distractions. So let's just dispel that misconception. No distractions, total focus. 
Another misconception about worship in heaven is that it's going to be like a church service. So if you're bored with church on Sundays, then the thought is where you're going to be bored then in heaven. That's not going to be the case. Not at all. Now, it may be true that some church services are boring. I hope ours is not. But even if they are, that's not the way it's going to be in heaven. Writing about why worship in heaven cannot be boring, one Bible teacher wrote this. I thought this is fascinating. He said, some subjects become less interesting over time. Others become more fascinating. Nothing is more fascinating than God. The deeper we probe into his being, the more we want to know. We'll never lose our fascination for God as we get to know him better. The thrill of knowing him will never subside. The desire to know him better will motivate everything we do. To imagine that worshiping God could be boring is to impose on heaven our bad experiences of so-called worship. Satan is determined to make church boring, and when it is, we assume heaven will be also. But church can be exciting and worship exhilarating. That's what it will be in heaven. We will see God and understand why the angels and other living creatures delight to worship him. He continues. Have you ever known people who couldn't be boring even if they tried? Some people are just fascinating. It seems I could listen to them forever, but not really. Eventually, I'd feel as if I'd gotten enough. But we can never get enough of God. There is no end to what he knows, no end to what he can do, no end to who he is. He is mesmerizing to the depths of his being. I love that expression. He is mesmerizing to the depths of his being. And those depths will never be exhausted. No wonder those in heaven always redirect their eyes to him. They don't want to miss anything. And folks, when we get to heaven, we're going to join those who always redirect their eyes to the Lord in adoration and worship of him. And like them, we will too be overwhelmed by who he is and we will fall on our faces and offer him praise and thanks for who he is and what he has done. And we're never going to grow tired of worshiping him because as the great hymn, Amazing Grace, reminds us, when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. So what will you be doing in heaven? You will be worshiping the Lord like you've never worshiped him before. But that's not all. That's not all you'll be doing in glory because the Bible makes it clear that in heaven we're going to be serving Jesus. But before we consider what our service will look like, I'd like to address a really good question that someone recently asked me. They wanted to know how it will be possible to do anything in heaven but worship Jesus. In other words, this person was wondering, if we are always gazing at Jesus in heaven, then how are we going to be able to do anything else? We're just going to be gazing at him. And the answer to that question is that worshiping Jesus now and in heaven is far broader than looking at him and singing songs of praise to him. You see, Scripture tells us that whatever we do, we are to do to the glory of God. Even the most mundane tasks like eating and drinking. If you do that, being conscious of God's presence and his gifts to you and you're grateful, that's worship. That's worship. We read in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we are to give thanks in all things. Folks, that's worship. 
We read in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's worship. Listen, our entire lives and all of our activities, that's worship. Because worship involves having fellowship with Christ, serving Him, putting Him first in your thoughts, being conscious of His presence, giving Him thanks for whatever you're doing or whatever you're receiving from Him, praising Him for whatever you want to praise Him for. Our giving is worship. Everything we do is supposed to be worship. For a Christian, our entire lives should be an expression of worship. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he said in Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. When you wake up in the morning, And if you have the attitude of, Lord, I'm yours, good morning, use me for your glory today, thank you for who you are, develop the fruit of the Spirit in me, or words to that effect, or at least that attitude, folks, that is your worship. Worship isn't restricted to what happens here on a Sunday morning. Your life should be worship. So once again, I want us to hear from Randy Alcorn because he has thought a great deal about many of these issues concerning heaven. He points out the variety of ways that we'll be worshiping when we are in heaven. He writes, will we always be on our faces at Christ's feet worshiping him? No, because scripture says we'll be doing many things, living in dwelling places, eating and drinking, reigning with Christ, working for him. Scripture depicts people standing, walking, traveling in and out of the city and gathering at feasts. When doing these things, we won't be on our faces before Christ. Nevertheless, all that we do will be an act of worship. We'll enjoy full and unbroken fellowship with Jesus. At times, this will crescendo into greater heights of praise as we assemble with the multitudes who are always worshiping Him. So, understand that Worship in heaven will not eliminate you doing works of service for Jesus, but rather your works of service will be part of your worship. And having said that, I'd like you to look in your Bibles or devices, or you can look on the screen, at Revelation 22, verse 3, in which we are told that in heaven we will be serving Jesus. We read, there will no longer be any curse, And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Now, what is fascinating about this verse is that the word curse is mentioned in relation to the word service, which is intended by God to be a deliberate reminder that way back in Genesis chapter 3, God cursed the ground, and as a result, man's service became very difficult and grueling toil. We read in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, It shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, from that day forth, the fall of man, man's toil has been painful, and it's been difficult. No matter how hard he worked, decay 
sin and weakness hindered Adam because it was a cursed ground that he had to work. Now, in spite of Mark Twain's well-known quip, Twain said, let us be grateful to Adam. He cut us out of the blessings of idleness and won for us the curse of labor. It's not true. Mark Twain, don't look to him for theology. <laughs> the Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that work is a curse, but rather just the opposite. That work is a gift, a blessing from God. Listen, before Adam ever sinned, while he was unfallen, while he was perfect, while he was sinless, God commanded him to work. Genesis 2.15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. That was Adam's job, to cultivate and keep the garden. Then sin came, the ground was cursed, and consequently, from that point on, everything changed. However, in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, in the new earth, with the curse lifted, our work will be as God intended it to be from the beginning. It'll be joyous. It'll be satisfying. It'll be pleasurable. We will return to what it was like for Adam in the beginning before he fell because just as Adam's service of working the garden was a service of delight that he did unto God, for God, that'll be the way it will be for us in heaven. Our work will be a service of delight unto God as well. Which is why as you go back to Revelation 22.3, we read, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. Because the curse then will be lifted. God the Father and God the Son will be there. Because the curse is not there. It's gone. So they will be there. They'll be there on their thrones. And we will have the supreme joy of seeing them and serving them. Interestingly, the Greek word that's translated serve here in Revelation 22.3, it's the same word used in the New Testament for priestly service. And that only makes sense because in the Old Testament, only priests could enter the presence of God. That is to say, only priests had direct access to God. But the New Testament, in a number of places, one in particular, Revelation 1.6 says that we meaning all believers in Christ, we have been made a kingdom of priests to God. And so in heaven, we will have continual access to the Father and to His glory and to the Son, which is why we read in Revelation 22, 3, that our service to the Father and Jesus is in connection with them sitting on their respective thrones. So, in heaven then, we will be serving God. The question then that I know that's on everybody's mind is, well, if that's the case, then what exactly are we going to be doing in heaven? What kind of work will we be involved in? Well, I know I'm not going to be a pastor in heaven. You won't need me then. Well, Scripture makes it very clear what we're going to be doing in heaven. And that is because right after reading in Revelation 22:3 about the fact of serving God in heaven, this is a fact, we're told in verses 4 and 5 what that service will look like. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will, note this, reign forever and ever. Instead of hiding 
and running from God, which is what Adam and Eve did right after they sinned. And ultimately, that's what every lost sinner does due to their shame, their guilt, their fear. In heaven, you're not going to be running from God. You're going to be looking at his face, the face of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. You're not going to have any guilt. You're not going to have any shame. You're not going to have any fear because having been reconciled to God by the death of of Christ on the cross and therefore being without any sin yourself, you will be in perfect, perfect fellowship with him. And therefore, as I said, you'll never run from him. You'll never hide from him. Instead, you're going to eagerly look at his precious face. Won't that be wonderful to just look into the eyes of Jesus? You'll be able to literally fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. That's what the writer to the Hebrews tells us to do, but we can't physically do that now. We look upon him through the pages of Scripture. But then we'll be able to gaze upon him. He'll be right there, and we'll see him. Though he's the king of the universe, you'll be able to see him. You'll be able to talk to him. You'll have complete accessibility to him. How that's going to all work out with so many people... I don't have a clue, so don't ask me. You see, your relationship with Jesus is very special because you, my dear fellow Christian, my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ, you belong to him. Notice, once again, Revelation 22, 4, where we read that his name will be on their foreheads. In other words, just as ancient slaves were branded with their master's name upon them, you will have your master's name, Christ, Jesus Christ, on your forehead. So that there'll be no question as to who you belong to. And while being in constant fellowship with the one that you belong to, we read then in verse 5 of Revelation 22 that God will illuminate everything His glory will be the central focus of the New Jerusalem. And then notice the last few words of verse 5. I'm just going to reiterate and reinforce this. They, meaning all believers, they will reign forever and ever. Now listen closely. What these words mean is that the work you will be doing in heaven, the service you will be rendering to him, is that of reigning, ruling forever and ever with our glorious God. That is to say that God who rules and reigns as the sovereign supreme one over the universe. Because why? Because, well, he's God. He's going to give us, graciously give us authority to rule and reign with him under his supreme sovereign authority. This is how God established things originally when he created the earth and man. He created, an, he created Adam and Eve to represent him in ruling over the earth. Because we read in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But with the fall of man, we lost the right to rule the earth. And thus the reason we read, listen to these verses in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one is testified somewhere 
saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him, he's talking about man, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now, now watch this, now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Now, I want you to just focus on this last sentence. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. By putting the word yet in here, the inspired writer is telling us that although now, due to our sin, we are not reigning with Christ, there is coming a day in the future when all things will be subjected to us. That day hasn't arrived yet, but it's coming. And when it comes, we will reign with the ultimate rule or under the ultimate rule, I should say, of Jesus Christ. And that day will be when we are in heaven with Jesus in the new earth. Not yet, but it's coming. Now, this shouldn't be new to us about reigning with him because the New Testament affirms that we will reign with Christ several times. For example, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, Paul said, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Revelation 3.21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. The overcomer is the believer. 1 Corinthians 6.3, do you not know that we will judge angels? We're going to be in charge somehow on doing something with angels ruling over them. Now folks, I don't know quite how to tell you this, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to give it to you straight. In heaven, you're all going to be government workers. That's right. Under the supreme and undisputed ruler of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, you will enjoy being a government worker then because the government will then be sinless without any corruption. There'll be no politics there and you will be completely fulfilled in your work. Listen again. I know I sound like a broken record, but listen again to Randy Alcorn, what he writes in his book about what it will be like to be a government worker in heaven. He says, the governments of the new earth won't be a democracy, it won't be majority rule, and it won't be driven by opinion polls. Instead, every citizen of heaven will have an appointed role, one that fulfills him or her and contributes to the whole. No one will fall through the cracks in God's kingdom. No one will feel worthless or insignificant. When I write and speak on this subject, people often respond, but I don't want to rule. That's not my idea of heaven. Well, it's God's idea of heaven. We're part of God's family. Ruling the universe is the family business. To want no part of it is to want no part of your father. It may sound spiritual to say we don't care to rule, but because God's the one who wants us to rule, the spiritual response is to be interested in his plans and purposes. Whom will we rule? Other people, angels. If God wishes, he may create new beings for us to rule. Who will rule over us? Other people. Of course, not all positions of responsibility over others involve people. Adam and Eve governed animals before there were any other people. Some of us may be granted the privilege of caring for animals. Perhaps some will care for forests. Ruling will likely involve the management of all of God's creation, not just people. Now, 
I want you to know something critical about your future work and your service for the Lord in heaven. So listen very carefully. While scripture does not reveal the details of the exact kind of ruling work any of us will be doing in heaven, it does reveal an important principle that your specific service for the Lord on the new earth is being determined right now by how faithfully you serve Jesus on the present earth. In other words, how faithful you serve the Lord now will determine the extent of your service in heaven. I say this because of what Jesus taught in an important parable that he gave in Matthew chapter 25 verses 14 through 23 as he explained what the kingdom of God was like. Listen to our Lord. He said, for it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. For one he gave five talents to another two and and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went out and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you've entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, what is this all about? Well, obviously, the man on a long journey represents Jesus while he is presently away from the earth, meaning these days, the days we're living in. The slaves, who are they? Well, they represent us, those who know and serve Jesus during his long absence. The talents refer, note this, they're not talents in the sense of talents that you have to do something. A talent refers to a certain denomination of money back in those days, and actually a considerable amount of money, since one talent then was worth the equivalent of about $1,000 in silver. Now, in this parable, the man, notice, the man gave varying amounts of money to his slaves. Why? Well, if you look at verse 15, it tells us. He gave these differing amounts, it says, according to their ability. So these varying amounts of money, they represent opportunities to use our abilities to faithfully serve the Lord. See, the point of this parable is to say that the more faithful you are now, in serving the Lord with the abilities and opportunities that he's given you, the more responsibility he will give you to serve him in the future, namely in heaven. Listen, the fact of the matter is that just as in this parable, one was given five amounts of money, another was given two amounts of money, and still one was given just one amount of money. So God has not given us equal abilities or spiritual gifts. Some Christians are just more gifted than others. But that is not what's important. What's most important 
to understand in all this is that however God has gifted you, you are responsible to make the most of your abilities and opportunities by being faithful to the Lord in serving him. It is required of stewards that a man be found what? Faithful. And when Jesus returns, he's going to evaluate whether or not you were faithful with the abilities and the opportunities that you had to serve him. And based on his evaluation, he will assign you responsibilities of work in heaven. This is the whole point of verse 23, where we read, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The joy of your master is heaven. It's glory. You see, your faithfulness in serving Jesus today will determine the responsibilities that the Lord will give you for serving him in heaven. The greater your faithfulness now, the greater your responsibilities will be in the future. And listen, it doesn't matter how menial your work is now. Just do it faithfully for the Lord and God will reward you with meaningful service for him. Now, when I talk about service now, I'm not talking about full-time Christian work. Anything you do, you're supposed to be doing for the Lord. Whatever you do, do it unto him. Jesus said, if you give somebody a cup of cold water in his name, you're serving him. Listen, if you hold the door open for somebody, an older person who's struggling to get through, you're doing that for him. That's serving him. So I'm not talking about necessarily plugging into some ministry here in the church, although that doesn't exclude this. I'm just saying that you need to have a way of life of serving him, being conscious of that, and be faithful in doing that. See, I want to just clarify, does this mean that if you're not serving the Lord in some kind of capacity now, a full-time capacity, then, or you're not even doing anything for him, does that mean that you're not going to have any work in heaven? No, it doesn't mean that at all, because Scripture says that every believer will be reigning with Christ. There are no exceptions. So you are going to be involved in some type of reigning. The only question is the extent of your reigning and ruling. Some will no doubt be leaders over nations. Some will govern regions. Some will rule over cities, over communities, over neighborhoods. I've often thought I wouldn't be surprised if the Lord puts me in charge as the mayor of Kenneth City. It didn't go over that well in the first service, but uh, just think about that. If you're from Kenneth City, I apologize. Listen, be excited about heaven. Be excited because you'll be worshiping Jesus and serving Jesus there like you have never worshiped and served him before. And be encouraged because no matter how God has gifted you or, or not gifted you, everyone can be faithful. It doesn't take a genius to be faithful. Just be faithful so that in heaven you will be given great responsibility. Jesus said that if you're faithful with little, he'll reward you with much. So, be faithful now. Even if no one recognizes what you're doing for the Lord, the Lord sees it, the Lord takes note of it, and he'll give you greater responsibility in glory. The last will be first. And if you haven't been serving him, then I say to you, get busy. It may be some ministry in the church, but it may be something else that you're doing. Just serve him. Your whole life should be serving and worshiping him. And all you do do it for him. Now, if Jesus isn't your savior, then you, my friend, are in grave danger of not going to heaven when you die. 
Because no one can go to heaven without faith in Christ. Since Christ is the only one who was judged for sinners. He is the God-man. There's no religious leader who could do this. and no church who could do this. He is the God-man. He died on the cross paying the price for sinners. The wrath of God the Father was poured out upon him. And God the Father accepted his sacrificial death on behalf of sinners. So when you trust him for salvation, he grants you the forgiveness of all of your sins. And he clothes you, he imputes and credits to your account his righteousness. And that's what you need, forgiveness and his righteousness, the only way to get to heaven. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So come, come to the Father only through Christ. Trust him. I plead with you. Put your faith in Christ before it's too late. If you want to talk to one of our pastors about this, then just see me as we close the service. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that your word, while not speaking extensively about all the details of heaven gives us enough, Lord, to excite us. And we are excited. I pray that there'll be a growing enthusiasm even as we continue this series. But I pray that what we have learned today, what we learned a few weeks ago, will help us to live more godly now, knowing what awaits us in the future. Help us to be more godly even now, faithful to you. I pray that you will ignite within us a spark to serve you, to see that everything we do is to be done in your name, and to worship you the way we ought to, Lord, and to serve you. And all of these things, I pray, Lord, I know they're a foretaste of glory, and I pray that you will help us to see these truths, to love them, to embrace them, and like the Old Testament heroes of old, to seek and to desire a better country than this, a greater city than this, heaven, the new Jerusalem. Lord, thank you. You made all this possible through the cross. I pray for any here who have never trusted you, that your death on the cross was for them. I pray that you'll draw them to yourself. I pray, Lord, that you'll You'll bring them to full salvation in Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.